0: Into Winchester, here with Auden Privett, and this is Reading Women, a podcast where we're claiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today, we have an interview for you with Maggie O'Farrell, the author of books like *The Hand That First Held Mine*, *Instruction for a Heatwave*, *This Must Be the Place*, and most recently, her memoir *I Am, I Am, I Am*. We are so excited to get to talk to Maggie today. I, man,
1: I know it's only February, but this is already one of my favorite books of the year.
0: Most definitely. And this is one that I absolutely adored and I can barely talk about it with like crying on the spectrum of just, you know, beautiful tears to like ugly crying. (laughs) So it's sad that that is a good sign, but it really is. It's a great sign.
1: It really is. And we're going to talk about this in the interview, but it is a memoir told in 17 different brushes with death, I believe is how she describes it. And
0: man, it's just really something else. And I discovered Maggie O'Farrell by it when I read This Must Be the Place uh, about a year or so ago, I believe. And it was one of my favorite books of the year. She's such a fantastic novelist, and she's written about seven novels. I've only read one, but when I saw that this was coming out, I've been waiting for it for like six months since it came out in the UK. It's now out in the US, and you can get it from Knopf. So when we read it, you know, I, you know, shoved in Autumn's hands. <laughs> uh, we wanted to ask her some questions about uh, some of the topics that she talks about in the book, like mortality, uh, her illness as a child, her daughter's illness. Uh, her daughter's about eight now. And uh, just all the different things that she puts together in this beautiful memoir. We also talked
1: to her a little bit about her process for writing this because it is her first work of nonfiction. All of her previous books have been fiction. So we kind of talked to her a little bit about that as well.
0: So without further ado from us, here's our interview with Maggie O'Farrell. So today we want to welcome Maggie O'Farrell to the podcast. She is the most recently the author of AM AM AM, which is her memoir, her first work of nonfiction. So welcome, Maggie. Really excited to talk to you today.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And we really enjoyed your book, as we kind of said a little bit before. Um, and I had never read any of your work before. And Kendra was like, how do you not know about Maggie O'Farrell? And I'm like, well, I'm fixing it right now. So <laughs> don't be too hard on me. Oh, well, that's very nice to know.
0: Thank you. So, Maggie, for our listeners who haven't read the book yet, would you could you care to describe it a little bit so they can get a little handle on what we're going to be talking about today? Well,
2: sure. It's, um, it's a memoir with a bit of a difference really it's uh, a life told in uh, a series of essays which aren't told in any chronological order instead they're arranged by parts of the body and each chapter focuses on a a different near-death experience so it's it's a life looked at through one particular lens the lens of when I came close to death in, in a variety of different ways and I thought to me it felt like a an interesting way to tell the story of a life
1: i did think that the structure was really cool and i was really intrigued by the little drawings or the prints that were at the beginning of each of the different sections
2: oh yeah well i i wish i could take credit for those <laughs> but my <laughs> artistic abilities would not if i'd drawn them nobody would want to buy that book <laughs> no, they are they're kind of antique uh, vintage uh details from old medical textbooks um, which this person, this uh, young woman in my publishers in the UK went to this kind of uh, uh, sort of a library and tracked all these incredible pictures down. And she, and she got one part of the body for every single chapter. So, yeah, she did an amazing job with those.
1: It was fantastic. Definitely, I feel like kind of set the tone for the stories too.
2: Yeah, they are really beautiful, aren't they? I was so pleased. I was so pleased with them.
1: So we've kind of mentioned that, you know, you've written... A lot of fiction, and but this is your first nonfiction work. What has it been like to publish something so different from your fiction, and what made you decide to write a memoir?
2: Well, it's probably my first and last nonfiction, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Not, I mean, actually, to be to be honest, I never, ever planned to write a memoir. I never, never thought I would do it. It always seemed like the very last thing I would do. I mean, in fact, I actually used to joke about it with my husband, and um, I used to say, you know, I'm as likely to become an acrobat as I am <laughs> to write nonfiction. <laughs> and if you read the book, you'll probably realize how impossible it would be for me to be an acrobat. Um, <laughs> so it, it was something that never, ever appealed to me, actually. I mean, I, mean, I love to read memoir, but it, I never really wanted to do it I mean for two reasons really that put me off the first one was that it always seemed like an enormous tax on your friends and family you know Mm -hmm. the idea I mean you know obviously writing about yourself is one thing because you as the author have complete control over what you say about yourself but representing others who are close to you um always seemed to me like a, a potential minefield, you know, why Why do that? Why do that to your friends and family? And also the other thing that really put me off, you know, I've never really, I've never been much of a fan of chronology, to be honest. You know, and all my, none of my novels actually follow a very organised chronological structure. Chronology doesn't really interest me. I find it artistically or creatively quite constraining you know I don't really think I don't think as human beings we are organized sequentially and neatly from a to b you know I think hmm. we're much more nuanced and complicated and I think memory and personality is much more layered or geological in a sense so and, and also in it didn't appeal to me at all to write the kind of memoir where you know I would say I was born in Ireland and then I went to and then I went to school and then and then that, and this kind of plod through life and that you know it, it had it held absolutely no interest for me whatsoever so I suppose coming up with the structure which the book is written in was quite liberating in a sense because it it isn't chronological and it's only told in these episodes and it is liberating because in a way it, it isn't chronological it's all organized by parts of the body um, and also I could put chapters together that sort of thematically seemed linked for me um and also that the structure of it enabled me not only to skip quite a lot in terms of time you know it's quite possible to kind of skip 5 or 10 years and there's an awful lot isn't in the book you know uh, I mean nobody in the book has his name apart from my husband he has his real name but everybody else is either anonymous or has a pseudonym and that was very important to me to be able to protect um, the people around me and protect their stories and their lives
0: I was reading an article online, getting ready for the interview, and I read this uh, little tidbit that it was, is it true that you only took like a one pound advance for the book because you weren't, weren't sure you were going to do it until like the very end? <laughs>
2: yes, it is. Well, it's, well that's like, I I never planned to do it. You know, I was all ready to write another novel and, you know, I do feel very wedded to fiction. I always have been. It's always what I wanted to do and always it's the kind of driving force of my life. And so I was slightly kind of <laughs> shocked in a way when this book started to emerge you know, in my notebooks and on my hard drive, like, I was sort of in denial for quite a while. And so my agent and my publishers read bits of it and they said, yeah, we want to publish it. And I said, well, I really don't know. I don't know if I'm going to finish it. And if I'm, if when I finish it, I don't know if I'm going to want to publish it. I don't know. I don't know if I can do it. And if I want to <laughs> do it, you know, <laughs> so, and so they gave me a contract and I said, I don't want any money at all. Cause it, it was, it, it would have felt so, depressing to have to hand back the money if I decided against it you know at any point and so they said well yeah legally you know to make it legally buying you have to have some money and so I said okay I'll, I'll take a pound which you know is about a dollar right. <laughs> so I did that's what I, did. I mean to, to be you know to be very fair they have paid me now okay. I should just put that out there
1: <laughs>
0: So you were saying that you love the liberation of not writing in a chronological way. Yeah. So how did you decide what pieces went where and what parts of the story came first? Well, it it felt quite
2: it felt quite clear to me in a way. I mean, I, I wrote it pretty much as it appears in the book. I mean, I, I don't normally, you know, with I'm writing. Fiction. I'm. I'm not much of a planner, really. I'm not much of a planner in either writing or or in life, actually. I think they're kind of. Uh, I think the kind of polite term would be, you know, my process is quite organic. But actually, probably the probably more realistic <laughs> word is chaotic. I do, I'm quite a chaotic person generally, and so I do. I tend to kind of just launch out and and see where the book is going to take me. But with this one, obviously, it required a bit more planning. So I did sit down with a notebook and I worked out. Which parts of my life, which experiences I wanted to focus on for each of the seventeen chapters? And to me it was it was a kind of it felt like a kind of a nat- a natural thing, the order in which they are. I mean, I, I suppose I approached it pretty much as a novelist, because you know I, that, that's what I am, you know that my instinct is is towards narrative and to and to fiction in a way. So I did even though the material is nonfiction, it is true. i I approached its structure pretty much as a novelist would. And so I th- I think it does kind of build, in a sense, to a sort of narrative reveal, I suppose, towards the last two chapters. Uh, it was always very clear to me that the last two chapters would be the last two chapters, because the penultimate one is about me, aged eight, eight, as a child, being very, very sick. And then the last chapter is about my daughter, who is actually eight now as well, which is the same age that I was in the preceding chapter.
1: I did feel like it was very organic. I didn't even notice that there what the dates were until about halfway through and I was like wait a minute I think that there's different date stamps on these um so I did like I just felt like it moved me along like I was just along for the ride until the end which was re- it was really great experience
2: that's good I'm glad to say because uh, yeah I th- I think dates aren't really that important but I, I think some people like them <laughs> <laughs> some people no. like that kind of anchor, sort of anchor <laughs> of it to work out work out where you are in time. Right.
1: Well, the title you take from Sylvia Plath, obviously, you know, in the Bell Jar, which is also about a woman who's like wrestling with these really difficult questions about life and mortality and all these things and I thought it was beautiful that the book your book ended with she is she is she is um about your daughter what is it about Plath and her work that made you decide to take I am I am I am as a title and kind of tie it together that way well
2: I was so I mean obviously you know I had to ask permission from Plath's estate to use that line so and you know it, it was always what I wanted to call the book usually I don't come up with when I'm writing when I've written my novels the title is always the thing that comes last in a way it's always the last piece piece of the jigsaw I I think with a novel you can only give it a title when you can see it you know when it's in front of you and you realize what you've done but with this book I always knew right from the start that 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 is what I wanted to call it partly because I did have the idea that the last line would come full circle you know because actually the, the last chapter which is about my daughter has this um, life-threatening medical condition and that that, of course is the reason why I've written the book which you found out uh, in the last chapter you realize that you know I am grappling with mortality on a daily basis because my daughter does have this um, very dangerous condition and so it was always really important to me just to kind of it was almost like sewing it up just pulling the thread the final stitch really really tightly and saying this is the purpose of the book it's about my daughter and it's a kind of a prayer and it's about it's a wish really for her to to keep going to to stay alive mm. um and so yeah it was very important you know, and, and I read the bell jar I think when I first when I was about I was probably about 17 I think or 18 and that line always stayed with me always stayed with me and she, and she uses it twice in the book you know the first time is when she, the character Esther is at a funeral and um She she hears her own heartbeat, um, and it's sort of it's a kind of it's a sort of elegy for her friend, but also a realization that she is still alive, that her body is saying I am, I am, I am. You know, you are still here. And Mm -hmm. then the second time, it's when the character is flirting with suicide, and she's she's swimming out into a lake a bit further and a bit further and a little bit too far, and she's sort of flirting with the idea. And at that point, it's her body fighting against her, saying No, you are going to come back. You're going to survive. And of course, it does. You know, there is this added layer of poignancy with Plath because obviously, you know, everybody knows how her life ended. But I've always felt with her, I mean, you know, that she's one of those writers whose biography, in a sense, um, overshadows her work. You know, her work is Mm. absolutely, you know, she was a brilliant writer. She worked so hard. You know, there's not a single word out of place in any of her books. She was fantastic. You know, she was an enormous life force and an incredible artistic and creative force. So, you know, it was very important to me that I could use the title. So I'm very grateful for the
0: Blatter States, State, that they said yes. Absolutely. So you talk about how the last chapter is about your daughter, which I want to ask about in a Hmm. second, but you also talk about how she came to be, Hmm. and you talk about your experience with miscarriage and just how there's a lack of almost language and a lack of room for women to be able to grieve, and just there's not really much of a conversation about yeah. that. So why do you think that women who go through a similar experience feel like they can't talk about it, and what are things that we can do as a society uh, to break the stigma around miscarriage?
2: Yeah, well I think it's, I think miscarriage is a very difficult subject to talk about because it is so private, and I think when you are going through it, you probably don't want- to talk about it that much I don't think I did I don't think 10 years ago I could have written a chapter where I talk about it I think it would have been too painful I think when you're going through it but you know and also it's so hidden you know it's very invisible thing to go through because you don't it it often happens not always obviously but it often happens before the point at which you've actually made it public that you are pregnant and so you're grieving for something that nobody knew nobody but you and perhaps your partner knew was there so it's a very difficult thing it's a difficult grief to articulate to yourself and also to others you know how do you explain to somebody your enormous grief over something that is that physically is so small but for you is so large you know it's the kind of idea of something it's the idea of it's it's the loss of a future that you're grieving for really so it is a very nebulous thing to go through and it's a an, it's a nebulous grief to have but I think you know I think the only I think the reason why it was so important to me to include that chapter was because the only the only thing really that helped me when I was going through having multiple pregnancy loss was reading about the experience of others. You know, one of the things that interested me while I was writing this book is that I learned... You know, I think every book that you write teaches you something you know or actually probably lots of things but one of the things I really grappled with with this book is the idea of the human need for narrative you know that it's it's an urge that we all have we need it we need to hear stories of other people's experiences you know and also we need to transmute our experience into story and into narrative you know we we have there's a reason why we're the only species that can um, has a language that can articulate, has a lexicon, you know, because we need to hear each other talk. We need to hear each other's stories. And that, I think, in that chapter was very, was, was a real learning curve for me.
0: It was one of the most beautiful pieces on miscarriage that I've read. And I mean, there haven't been many, as you mentioned. And just the way that you express that was just very meaningful. And I and I definitely think that women who read it, uh, who experienced something similar will definitely be able to find some solace and what you've written. Well, I hope so. Well, I think I think when
2: any of us are going through a challenging time, you know, the only thing that can help us is to know that you're not alone, that others have, have been there as well. I think that's the only thing sometimes, you know, when we're really at our lowest ebb, um, that that's the only thing that can give us, you know, a crumb of comfort. Yeah. Knowing that, others have, that others have been in the same place. So one of the
1: other stories in this this essay I guess I don't know like an essay memoir I'm not quite sure how to talk about it um, <laughs> but cerebellum <laughs> the section oh, yeah. cerebellum was really beautiful and you mentioned in that section in particular um how being seriously ill as a child made you reckless when you could have been like really you know kind of could have swung the other way and been really cautious um in regards to like your activities and how you lived your life could you talk a little bit about how your childhood experience changed the way that you relate to yourself and your own mortality in that way well
2: I think you know I I, I think I think any serious illness changes you but I think particularly as a child you know I think I think there is something very potent about being very sick as a child because first of all you have no you have very little agency over what happens to you and very little understanding of it you know there's a line in the book where it says you know Nobody tells you, as a child, nobody tells you you're going to die. You have to work it out for yourself. You know, that, you know to go through an experience of realising that you are dying or that people around you are expecting you to die is a very potent thing to go through, especially when nobody tells you. Because, you know, as an adult, you will be spoken to by a doctor. They will explain it to you. But as a child, you've just got to pick up on the little tiny signals around you. You've got to try and interpret the silences and the expressions of people. But, I mean, actually what happened to me is that I actually heard someone there's a nurse outside the room who who said, you know, there's a little girl dying. in there, And I did hear that, you know, and obviously hearing that as an eight year old is always going to change you. And so I knew that there was a destiny mapped out for me by the doctors that they were expecting me to die. And when I didn't, I, I knew that there was a second destiny mapped out for me was that I was never going to walk again. You know, that I was going to be in a wheelchair. I was never going to hold a pen. I was going to have to live, probably live in an institution or at least be educated in a place, you know, where there were other I mean, the word they used in the 1980s was handicapped, you know, <laughs> which luckily has fallen out of use now. Yeah, so I knew that, that that destiny. And so, you know, I, and so the kind of awareness that I had managed to find a loophole out of not one, but both of those destinies, I think it really does change you. And I think, as I say in the book, you know, it could have gone the opposite way. It could have made me a, a very cautious and nervous person knowing that I caught this virus. One day I had a headache and then a week later I was paralyzed, you know. I think that Mm -hmm. that could have had that effect on me. But actually it had the opposite because I felt that I had been given this extraordinary escape. I had escaped twice, you know. Not only did I not die, but through a lot of physical therapy I am able to walk, you know. And I do have, you know, obviously very very minor sort of overhangs from you know neurological and slight physical I wouldn't call them disabilities I call it incapacities I think of them but um I mean given that I I always felt that ever since then I've been I've lived on this kind of incredible charmed life (laughs) you know it was extra I didn't quite I don't really deserve it but I've been given it and so my I think ever since the age of you know 10 when I was sort of recovered mainly but I've always felt that I've got, I've been given this life and I shouldn't really have had it, but I do have it. And so I must make the most of it. And I need to live it to the absolute maximum. And I need to try everything and say yes to everything and grab every opportunity by the horns.
1: You know, I just realized when you were talking, this section in particular really resonated with me. And I think part of it is because when my brother was four, he had cancer. So I think like as, and I think I was probably like 10 or something like that, and trying to process that as a kid, you really can't. Because like you said, like you don't expect as a kid to be told that you know, you're know you going to die or something like that. Um, and that's a time period in my life that I always end up circling back around to, that it really was, I mean, changed how I viewed the world at a very young age. Well, that's
2: actually, I mean, the reason why the book is dedicated to all three of my children, because I think it's very, I mean, ju- just as you say, I think you pinpointed it exactly, I think when one member of a family has a medical condition or is under threat you've got to frame it as something that affects every every person you know yeah. i don't for a minute ever forget that my middle child's medical condition does not affect her brother and sister you know i know that they need as much care and they need as much of a safety net as she does in the sense because you know it, it's all it's it's very very hard for the siblings to look on because you know, not only do they not comprehend it there's i think they feel helped panicked you know i mean last winter my middle daughter was taken away in an ambulance and you know obviously my priority in that moment was to get into the ambulance and to make sure she was like as i was in the ambulance i could never for one never forget that i'd had to peel her four-year-old sister's fingers off her Mm. let the paramedics get in the ambulance and i knew that you know i was thinking obviously about my middle child mostly but i was thinking at the back of my mind i thought i'm gonna have to make that okay for her for the little one or as okay as i possibly could when i got back because she's never gonna forget that as as you're saying about your brother is your brother okay now
1: oh yes he's taller than I am. Very lively kid. So oh, he's that's good to hear. He's,
2: he's wonderful, oh, amazing.
1: He, he definitely has a for that him. joy for life that, you know, <laughs> leaps and bounds.
2: <laughs> I can see that's interesting. Four is little as well. Gosh, that's very young to have yes, that. Very young,
1: but he's a good now. Good.
0: So you've mentioned it already a little bit about moving from you know, a child who is a patient who has a serious illness to being a mom who is, you know, trying to care for a child with a serious illness, as well as, Mm. uh, you know, your two other children. What has that transition been like moving from one to the other?
2: Well, it's funny. I mean, to me, it seems very unrelated in a way, you know. um, I mean, I think, I don't know. I do think actually that children who perhaps like Autumn's brother, but I think there is something about children who have gone through a huge amount of suffering and danger in a way that it does... I'm not sure. I think it does um, make you more empathetic, in a sense. I think it does make you more aware of other people's suffering and what other people might be going through, possibly. I do, I do think there is something. I mean, you know, I think all these brushes of death change you. You know, you always come back from the brink a different person. You're slightly altered. You have... I mean, I say it in the book, you know, you're wiser and sadder because you've you've been... To the brink, and you understand that life is fragile. And I think you, I mean, I find I think I don't know whether it's because I was ill or because you know my daughter has you know a number of medical conditions, but I cannot watch anybody suffering. I I cannot walk past anybody suffering. It does kind of, you know, I think it's the opposite effect of the Grinch. You know, the Grinch has a heart two sizes too small. It does enlarge your heart, (laughs) (laughs) so you you always want to help people. You know, you always need to stop and say. Is there something I can do? Can I help you? Are you lost? You know, I think it it does. It will, it will, you know, and I think there is something to be said that, you know, it does. You do learn things from these experiences and you learn things about other people's suffering and you want to help them. So there is that, I think. But it's funny, I mean, you know, in the last chapter is about one of the most frightening episodes of my daughter going into anaphylactic I mean, she's been into anaphylactic shock, you know, quite a few times, but the one of the most frightening ones is when we were in Italy and we were lost. We didn't know where we were you know the the sat nav wasn't working our mobiles weren't working we had actually no idea where we were we were at kind of country road in italy and we needed to get to hospital but we couldn't call the ambulance and we didn't know where we were it was terrifying but i mean actually we we did manage to get her to hospital and thank god it was all fine but it's funny an italian friend of mine came to see us the day afterwards and um a day later and she said to me in a very broken english i mean to be honest her english is a lot better than my italian <laughs> she said to me uh, she said she is just the right daughter for you it's very beautiful and mm. i remember thinking gosh that's a funny thing <laughs> but i was very touched by what she said and i uh, it was funny and i was sitting you know when my daughter was in bed and i was kind of had my eyes around her and i thought that's an amazing thing to say, <laughs> that's an thing to say. but maybe yeah. it's true i, I think maybe the, the the right children find the right parents who knows
1: i think it's true well as we've said, this is an amazing memoir and it's one that I think I finished it a couple weeks ago and it's definitely stuck with me. Um so thank you for talking to us about it. But before we let you go, we did have a couple of fun questions we wanted to ask you. And this one is a bit like... ominous. <laughs> <laughs> before yeah. we let you go <laughs> No, we go did on, fire one... ahead. So our podcast is about women writers and mm. so who are some of your favorite Uh, Obviously Sylvia Plath, but other than Sylvia Plath, who are some of your favorite women writers? Oh gosh, there are so many. How how long is your podcast? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I
2: would say, no, so many. Um, Dead, dead ones. I would say the Brontes, definitely Charlotte, in particular Charlotte. Um, (laughs) Also George Eliot, I absolutely love her, particularly Daniel Deronda, some of my favorite books. Um, I also really love uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who is a turn-of-the-century feminist writer American she wrote an incredible I mean it's tiny I mean to call it a novella is sort of exaggerating it but it's more a short short story novella but it's got such power and it's called The Yellow Wallpaper and I first yeah. read that when I was about 16 and it absolutely blew me away I had no idea that you were allowed to write like that <laughs> you know because it's all about this woman who kind of uh, is having a sort of mental disintegration she's just had a baby and her husband is suffocating her with the wrong kind of care and it's just horrifying i had no idea that a domestic scene could be so frightening because it could be as frightening as dracula that really changed my life so i love them and i also um, emily dickinson um, and the live ones i would read i don't know i'd read pretty much anything that um margaret atwood uh, wrote it's probably her shopping lists um <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, eleanor ferrante uh, alice monroe i'm a huge fan of alice monroe i love am holmes i think she's fantastic i think every book of hers does something so daring and so different i think she's you know readable i love jennifer egan i'm a big fan of her amy bloom mm. Oh, so many i could just keep going i can mm. is remember fantastic rose Kate Atkinson. yeah there's a lot of really exciting work coming out
1: many of them are our favorites too oh good
2: Oh yes
0: there's so many wonderful writers we all agree they're <laughs> wonderful everyone go read them
2: <laughs> i tell you who i, re- I read who i really love is edith perlman who writes fantastic short stories
0: Oh. I never read her
2: yeah she's an American yeah she's absolutely I read her um she's written a collection called binocular vision she's got I think she's in her 80s wow maybe. oh um, wow yeah she's she's absolutely fantastic Anne Patchett, there's another one yeah. who I love and yes. actually I was thinking because Anne, Anne Patchett wrote the introduction for um binocular vision Yeah, she get hold of them. fantastic brilliant short stories
0: she says great recommendations too
2: yes she does actually always yeah I always actually tend to pick up book if she's endorsed them.
0: So those are a few of your favorite writers. Now we understand if you don't want to jinx it, or you're not sure or you don't want to share. But what are you working on now? All right, well, I am, I'm not a superstitious person, but I can't
2: really tell you much. But it is a novel. That's all I can say. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's
2: really great to be able to. Uh, I'll take it. It's really great to be able to return to making things up. Such so a really, The truth is hard. Fiction is much, much easier. <laughs> yeah, fiction's Yeah, fiction is a breeze, actually, compared to non-fiction.
1: Well, that's exciting. We will be eagerly anticipating the release of that.
2: Oh, well, that's very kind of you. Thank you.
1: So before we go, we just want to say thank you so much to Maggie O'Farrell for coming in and talking to us about her memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am, and it's definitely a book you want to pick up and read this year. Um, we both highly recommend it and think you'll enjoy it as much as we will. So thank you, Maggie. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So that was our interview with Maggie O'Farrell, and it was amazing to talk with her. And I just have no words, really. <laughs> <laughs>
1: she really was so great to talk to. Just on a whole variety of things, just from her writing to her experiences. It's definitely a moving book, one that will stay with me for a long time.
0: As we said earlier, it might just be the beginning of the year, but I'm pretty sure that this is going to go on one of my favorites of the year. I'm just calling it now.
1: i think i agree with you 100 if you want to get a copy of i am i am i am for yourself it is uh, out now by knoff and you can buy it at your favorite local bookstore and you can find out more about maggie at her website maggieoferrell.com and we will also have links to her website and to the rest of her books in our show notes And as for us, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter and Litzy and Facebook at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester, and you can find me at Autumn Privet. Thank you all so much for listening to The Reading Women podcast, and we will talk to you soon. Bye, guys.